Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Maya Culpa podcast, now on the Mighty Midas Touch Network. So find all future episodes of our show behind the blue banner, and we're glad you're here. And now on with the news. There are many months before November, but the mango Mussolini is already melting down. He can't tell the difference between his current opponent, Nikki Haley, and his old nemesis, Nancy Pelosi. All he knows is that they are both women and that he does not like either of them. Smeared makeup, cognitive decline, conversational lapses and temper tantrums. It's just a day in the life of the Republican frontrunner. With all of his issues, his endless lies and lies and lies. And thousands of pounds of baggage. Trump is still the guy who Republicans have decided to rally around in 2024. After Nikki Haley lost in New Hampshire Tuesday by 11 points, she vowed to stay in the race despite no discernible path to the White House. And in retaliation, Trump lambasted her during his victory speech, lamely attempting to land ugly personal attacks against her and calling her Nimbra, a reference to her Indian name and a flat-out racial slur. But Haley is brushing off Trump's bullshit rhetoric and fighting back, in fact. In fact, she's starting to look like a real contender, even as she conceded in New Hampshire. She told the ugly truth. Trump has caused Republicans to lose ever since the day after he won the presidency in 2016. Trump's unhinged victory speech was an invective-filled embarrassment. His former rivals, the idiot Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott, like two fucking assholes, stood behind him grinning like fucking idiots. Like they were his bros. But there was nothing in Trump's speech that felt even a little victorious. Just spiteful and mean. The only real Republican winner on Tuesday was the big lie, because apparently so many New Hampshire voters still fucking believe it. On Wednesday, RNC head Ronna Romney McDaniel tried to play nice with Nikki Haley, praising her efforts, but telling her it was time to quit the race so the party could come home to Trump. J.P. Morgan Chief Jamie Dimon and Texas Senator John Cornyn are the latest Republicans to suck it up and fall in line behind the Lion King. But the minute Haley drops out of the race, leaving literally no alternative, Republicans are going to feel the pain, the pain of having to support a fucking psycho. Or not, maybe they save themselves and the party by voting for Biden or by just sitting it out for a few years to regroup. And not all Republicans still support Trump's desire to be their dictator. The maggots do for sure, but there are signs that his appeal is waning with the moderates. Both the Iowa and New Hampshire turnouts was lower than expected. And then there's the matter of Trump's 91 felony counts. 
Now, according to a recent Reuters poll, only 20% of voters say that they would vote for him if he's convicted. So, Biden would win by a landslide, followed by a tsunami. Nikki Haley finally called out that fact in her concession speech, but it's probably too little and fucking way too late. She spent an enormous amount of time pussyfooting around the elephant in the room, saying she'd pardon him if he's convicted and praising him for being, and I quote, a great president. No, Nikki, he wasn't a great president. He was a fucking asshole. When she should have been trying to get in some real blows. But it's still early days, and we can't expect that this election cycle will be anything like normal. At least not as long as Trump is in the race. But guess who was in attendance at Trump's victory party on Tuesday? Nope, not Melania. No, it was Trump's constant companion and sometimes lawyer, Alina Habba-Badaba-Baba-Baba. Monday, Habba claimed to be under the weather, which successfully delayed Trump's defamation trial for three days. Now, to be fair, Judge Kaplan did say that one of the jurors had also reported feeling unwell and was sent home to take a COVID test. But the result remains that Trump was spared having to testify in his defamation rape trial until after the New Hampshire primary. I mean, coincidence? I don't think so, but who knows, maybe. But a hardcore supporter and ex-Trump campaign official was thrown out of the former president's victory party after posting a photo of himself on Twitter alongside, yeah, you guessed it, Alina Habba, with the caption, just arrived at President Trump's New Hampshire primary victory party and ran into the wonderful Alina blah blah blah. I mean, President Trump's rock star attorney and a huge inspiration of mine. Yeah, again, if you don't hear this, if you don't hear the comedy in that one, let me say it again. And a huge inspiration of mine. Next, the kid posted a video of himself being unceremoniously booted from the party with no explanation. And I quote, this is how they treat loyalty, he whined. This same kid was seen telling cops to kill themselves during the January 6th riot. So no need to feel sorry for him. In fact, let's all say it together. Fuck him. But Habba may have some explaining to do when she gets back to court. And we'll see. But hey, I've got a question. Do you want to pay Trump's legal bills? The answer should be probably not. But if you live in Florida, Republican lawmakers, vying for Trump's attention, of course, are proposing that your tax dollars be used to do just that. Pay the Donald's legal bills. But Ron DeSantis, I mean of all people, is standing in the way, saying that he will veto the bill if it gets to his desk. I mean, who the fuck knew that Meatball had a spine? After last week's loss in Iowa, Ron dropped out of the race and, as predicted, threw his support behind Trump. But it looks like paying Trump's legal bills is a bridge too far. And rumor has it that Mrs. DeSantis is considering running for governor now that Ron has termed out. I mean, guess Ron will stay home and take care of the kids. 
And here's a bit of good news. Comedy Central announced Wednesday that Jon Stewart is coming back to The Daily Show. I mean, perfect timing. He's built for election year politics, and just about no one else has his encyclopedic knowledge of the issues or his commitment to saving our democracy. So welcome back to the conversation, John. I'd like to be on the show personally, but I feel like it's like you never left. And now for the main event. My next guest today is back in the show, Michael LaRosa. He was press secretary to the first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, and special assistant to the president until 2022. LaRosa is a frequent commentator on CNN, MSNBC, and ABC, providing analysis of Congress campaigns and elections. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so it's great to have you back, Mike, for the show. So let's just jump right into it. What do you think of President Biden's poll numbers? I mean, look, you know me. I don't believe in the polls, and they're certainly not, they're not, they're not really trustworthy. Just, and on top of everything, it's really early. But should the White House right now be worried? Should Americans be worried? I think probably the answer to your question is a resounding Unfortunately, yes, I think it would. I, I think it's hard to say the sky is is uh, red when it's blue, right? The polls aren't good. Of course, they're not good. But that's also not um, out of sort of the historical norm for incumbents. Incumbents incumbency is messy, right? It is easy to be a candidate and um, unite a cause around one objective, beating the other guy. President Biden has multi-priorities to to juggle. And those priorities require making decisions that don't make everyone happy all of the time. And when you do that for four years, you take on a lot of water. And so a lot of it is just, you know, the bare essentials of being an incumbent. And those poll numbers, look, when, when this becomes a two-person race, which as we might know, uh, we might find out tonight, could be as soon as tomorrow, those numbers are going to change. And I think people who, maybe Democrats and independents who might be a little disaffected uh, with the current state, they're going to remember why they got rid of this guy four years ago. And they're going to come back to the team. Okay. So I'm watching, for example, CNN. Yeah. And they had, you know, reporters go out to New Hampshire. And they're speaking to several really, you know, average Americans. They are America, right? I mean, the working class Americans out in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And they asked them, tell us what is it about Donald Trump that you like, Yeah. right? And the funny thing is the first thing they revert to is the things that they didn't like, mm -hmm. his rhetoric the nastiness, the divisiveness. But then going back to what they did like about him, somehow or another, he has convinced them that in 24 hours, he could fix the border situation. Mm -hmm. Now, I had this conversation yesterday with a woman from Florida, 
Um, mm-hmm. Wealthy woman. She's a very close friend of a very dear friend of ours that moved out of New York. Uh, mm-hmm. Kept a residence, but moved out for, per- for residency status. And she, too, believes two major things. One, that Trump can fix the border situation literally overnight, and that the vaccinations that (laughs) Joe Biden has pushed are not healthy for us and are actually killing us. And I'm not talking about someone who's not highly educated. Yeah. Not somebody who you could easily fool. Right. So what do we need to do, as I tried to do with her yesterday, and deprogram her? Yeah, out of curiosity, did did you ask her um, why he wasn't able to fix the border the four years? Of that course. He was, and and what did of she say? Of course I did. And and, um, and did, did you remind her that the you know Operation Warp Speed was you know under under Trump? Yeah, and on top of that, I also tried to use empirical data to explain <laughs> that. Truth be told. We lost a million Americans. And I tried to explain things, including I lost a family relative, uh, my aunt. And I sat there and I'm saying to myself, let's just use facts. Forget about what Donald has told you, because he says a lot of things, much of which, if not almost all of it, is bullshit. Mm -hmm. We lost a million Americans. And I said, I want you to just make a visual of this. That there are a million shares at people's dining tables that will not be sharing with their families, birthdays, holidays, celebrations, etc. And all of that was because he stood up and said, there's like maybe three cases, it'll be gone by the weekend, go back to work. Yeah. When he realized that it was too late, what did he do? Operation Warp Speed. And, you know, you got to give him credit for pushing it through. Now, she believes that the mRNA, um, the creator of mRNA, had told her that the COVID vaccination is unhealthy, that it's causing significant cases of myocarditis. Mm. This is what Americans are listening to. This is what they're believing And somewhere along the line, this administration has never combated it. And I, after an hour, I almost threw my hands up and I said, you cannot convince certain people of certain things. You could convince them that Donald Trump is is and would be terrible if he became president again, but not that he won't fix the border which, as we all know, immigration has what? Been a problem for 60 years plus? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, (laughs) and that he, you know, that Biden administration is ignoring all the issues surrounding the remnants of COVID. Yeah, so there are three places I want to go with that to break it down. Um, Because, first of all, going back to COVID, it's hard to deprogram somebody who, who believes that that kind of information? It, it, I, I guess the first thing I would want to know in my mind is: Has that person ever voted for a Democrat before? And if 
If not, then it sounds like they're they're searching for reasons to really just hate another Democrat. Um, what I won't forgive the Trump administration for is their behavior when Biden was elected and trying to us, our, our, our transition team and our, our team going into the White House, trying to work with that White House to distribute those vaccines as soon as possible. And they really did everything in their power to choke off cooperation from every agency from working with, with us. Um, and all we were trying to do was be able to hit the ground running by being able to distribute um, vaccinations in a fair and equitable way uh, and a priority way as soon as we got in. And, and that's that's pretty unforgivable uh, for for me because that shows you the kind of people that and the people that he chose, but that there was no one at any agency willing to do to defy him to just work with the reality of the situation, which has been a not just a tradition, has just been a norm for the transition of power going back hundred some years, but like this was a moment of crisis. And when you, I thought like in 2017, 18 and 19, there were a lot of examples that showed he really wasn't interested in the business of governing, of being president, like the day to day, like Biden thrives on public service and being a steward of the people and being thoughtful and and wrestling and tackling complex issues, it, it became pretty clear that the guy that Trump was never really up for the job. But my God, there is no moment that tests you more than a crisis. I mean, think about Pearl Harbor and um, World War II or the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think like the, the, the Challenger Crisis and. And, and Reagan even, um, but 9-11 and Bush is the best example. I mean, leaders rise to the occasion to lead their country in a moment of crisis and then out of you crisis. Mean like the, you mean like the Civil War <laughs> that he could have ended in 24 hours? Yeah, I want to come back to that, though, and the rhetoric. Part. Oh, we will. But, but that's the biggest thing with him is that he's not really up for the job. He doesn't know how to do the job. He's not really interested in the job. He's interested in a lot of extraneous things that really don't affect anybody else. Um, but Michael, my biggest, one of my bigger concerns about this election is that I was a TV producer in the fifth, in 2000, in the 2016 cycle, which is when I first got, or first met you and heard about you, got to know you. And, and we, you know, I, I worked for Chris Matthews at Hardball at MSNBC and we had Trump on as a candidate several times, we did town halls with him. Um, you would, by the way, he was the easiest candidate to get on the phone, uh, as you know. <laughs> um, but a lot of these things, I feel like he says and does because he knows it makes liberals and the and sort of the mainstream center left media lose their minds. It and it works we all lose our minds over what he says. And then we talk about it nonstop all day long, every day, week after week until the election. So, I mean, I just remember how much oversaturation 
of attention we gave him, I don't know if it ever hurt him. And so I don't know. I can't, I'm not a lawyer and I, I, I'm not, I'm not his supporter. So I, I don't know what will make or break his support. But all I know is that these, you know, objectively crazy things that he says don't seem to have much impact on, on him or his support. Um, even, even in the middle, you know, and, uh, you, know, you said something though, Mike, I gotta tell you, you said something that really has, it struck me and I haven't thought about this yet that I did not ask her. And I believe she is a Republican and always has been that they're all searching for a reason. And that's probably the truth, because even one of the folks that CNN was interviewing, a guy uh, who works in a quarry, mm-hmm. he turned around and he said that he believes that if Trump gets back into office, that his boss will receive significant tax breaks. And he believes and the word believe popped up like four or five, uh, four or five times. He believes mm-hmm. that his boss would then pass along a percentage of the of the savings and increase everybody's wages, which would put more money into his pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know where he came up with this belief that his boss, if making greater profit because some sort of a tax break would put or leave more money in his pocket or the company's pocket, that he's going to automatically distribute it to his employees, unless they're his children, right? Uh, It just doesn't make any sense. But they're all searching for reasons. I think you actually nailed it because that's that's probably the truth. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that? I mean, I I grew up loving politics. I was a political junkie since I was little. And I, I was glued to the TV and cable during the Clinton years. And to see what happened to to Bill Clinton over you know, what now seems to be pretty, you know, standard, (laughs) standard par for the course. I mean, he lied in a civil suit, I guess. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it meant or warranted impeachment, but, um, you know, to see Republicans who persecuted Bill Clinton over something like that and evangelicals and like the, the, the moral majority and, and, and the right wing to see them fall in love and, and this like cult like personality for a guy who used to be a Democrat most of his life. I mean, I, you, you know better than I do of his evolution in politics. But from what I remember is I think I thought he was mostly a Democrat or like a reform. Yeah, I mean, he's been everything. He's been independent, Democrat and Republican. He's been it all. One thing he's, he's a all- man of the people. Yeah, 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 the blue-collar billionaire, right? Um, Yeah. So, but the one thing that he's always been consistent about is his ability, or I should say a consistent skill set that he has, is, Michael, like, you know, he's just a, he performs. He goes on stage. I don't know if much of what he says is calculated in a sense, other than he knows there are, there are things that he will say he know like what he knows is media right he knows that msnb will, msnbc will cover him all day long he seems to he, he doesn't seem to mind that in fact no, no, I think, he thri- he thrives on it but, but so 
I don't, I don't know what you, what, I don't know what the answer is because th- this was the same way in 2016. I mean, I'd be in the control room and we'd be covering, I remember we were covering some Hillary event. <clears throat> Hillary was speaking and we had to yep. force, cut away, yep. cut away, <laughs> cut away. Yeah, because go, Donald, because Donald was coming out of the office. I mean, well, it really he, was crazy. He wasn't even at a podium, but his rallies were, were so you know, dynamically produced. There was ruckus. There was energy. There was everything live TV loves. And yeah. he's good at live TV. He's good TV. Yeah. Yeah. He's well, good. Then, let me ask you. So let me ask you this on the same thought. What do you then think of President Biden's current media strategy? Clearly, it is very different than Donald's. I mean, his recent ad that he put out, it's very simple. It's Trump confusing Nikki Haley for Nancy Pelosi with, you know, Nikki Haley narrating it. It's directed, right, at Donald. It's direct. And it's also funny. Exactly. But, Mike, what, in your opinion, should President Biden be doing right now? Because there's only 10 months left right now to convince voters to choose him for a second term. So... Uh, you're right. Like there is no, and, and Roger Ailes knew this well. Trump knows this well. There's no substitute for, for, for humor in, in advertising, in television, political advertising. So, you know, first of all, without a doubt, I'd love to see more of that from the Biden campaign. And and it looks like they are, they are doing that now. I think it's, there was a, there was a while, there was a, a period of time over in the fall, probably around Labor Day where people, I think started piling on about the Bidenomics stuff. And, uh, you know, they spent a lot of money on ads, which didn't seem to move numbers. And um, people were critical of that. But it seems like they, they, they got the message and they are starting to really take this guy on. And that's exactly what they need to be doing. Now, well, the, the, the problem is I was going back in preparation for a conversation and reading an article from 1992 about um, the Bush White House and how the economy had actually started to turn around in January of 1992. There, there is uh, it was just making a, a strong recovery and then months of growth. And they were banking that the good news of the economy was going to overshadow the perception that was already baked in. Um, and I, I was reading a quote because it was from a Democratic pollster who is still polling now, um, a guy named Jeff Guerin. I think he was Hillary's pollster. I think I, he does Democrats. He's a Democratic pollster. Um, and he said, you know, even if end- economic indicators get better between now and Election Day, the economy is the reason voters make changes. The American people believe Believe, underscore believe, our economy is in deep trouble in fundamental ways. And unhappiness with the economy was greater than the reality of the economy. And so going back to your question, I, I, I think, and that, that was a Democrat talking, um, I think voting starts at the end of September in some states. 
I felt like I was campaigning four years ago in Georgia for, for four mm-hmm. or five weeks. So there isn't much time to change perception about the economy. But what you can do is make, and I feel like a cliche saying it, but it's just the only way to say it is just make the contrast, rip the bark off the guy, make him completely unacceptable to any independent voter because he is a foil. He is the, there are age-ish age concerns for both candidates that voters have, but there is a, a competency argument to make about Biden, a we need to eat our eat our vegetables and drink our medicine one more time and do the right thing, the mature thing. And just, you know, the first lady would campaign saying people don't want to be worried about government when they wake up. They don't want to think about government at all. And I thought that she hit the nail right on the head. It was something yeah. she would say in, in stump speeches in 2020 primary and in general. It's so true. Your average voter doesn't think about government all day long or politics the way we do. They don't have to worry that we're on the verge of, you know, whatever it is, democratic, you know, collapse or, you know, World War Three. But just, but just imagine if Trump was president right now, and the other day, the stock market hit the all-time high record. Could you imagine the media coverage that he would have created for that? And people would be talking about the economy as if everyone's 401k was, in, was on fire. Which, by the way, your 401k is probably doing very well, right? Mm-hmm. The Biden administration and those that are running his ads and his campaign, they're missing the opportunities. Sometimes... everything that comes out of Trump's mouth may be crazy and it may be self-serving and it's certainly laudatory to him, but some of it is absolutely accurate. If you are the president at the time that the stock market hits its all-time high, say it. Yeah. Say it. Right. We hit it. Donald would be right now everywhere talking Mm -hmm. about how thanks to him. Forget about all of the technology companies and all of the, the, the manufacturing that is going on that's creating this rise in the stock market. No, he would take credit for it. Biden, so, the day comes and then the day goes. Yeah. And that's why people don't realize that the economy is actually doing well. Yes, mortgage rates are higher. I get that. Well, one of the things I said in an op-ed I wrote back in October, in September for msnbc.com was how he needs to, they need to think, reevaluate sort of how they communicate to the American people and what they're communicating and communicating to the American people. Isn't just reading and squinting, God bless them, uh, in front of a, a teleprompter and reading to the American people. You have to be talking to the American people, talking with the American people. And a lot of that is, um, in television and what comes across is emotion. People should be able to turn the volume down on the television and be captivated by what they're seeing. Like they should be wanting to have, a, they should see an animated conversation going on. And, um, and so one thing you're right about, Michael, is that uh, Donald Trump is his own and his best messenger. Yep. And, he doesn't trust anybody else to, to, to be his messenger. He does it. There isn't a camera or a reporter he won't or a microphone that he won't 
you know, walk by without talking to. I give him credit for um, how he the how accessibility, often, yeah. How the accessibility, how often he engages with the media. Of course, it's up to the consumer of news to sort of evaluate what he's saying and whether that's true or not. It's consumers have news have a responsibility as well. Um, and what worries me sometimes is that, you know, John Kerry made this mistake when um, he was being pummeled by the swift boat vets, you know, and what we remember most is not really what the vets were saying about Kerry, but what we remember is the strategic error, the Kerry campaign by not responding at all, by not saying anything and allowing a void to be filled with disinformation. And that was the only thing people heard. And so yeah. now, and I, and you know what? I don't know, Michael, if you, if you know, knew this, but last year I saw um, this panel, a bipartisan policy center panel, Jay Carney, the White House press secretary for President Obama. He, he said something that really, that I haven't forgotten. And he said, the biggest mistake that he and President Obama made together, and they both have talked about it since, the biggest mistake they made in the White House was not engaging fast enough and aggressively enough on um, on Trump and the birth certificate. That they just laughed it off and assumed, like the Kerry campaign, that voters and the American people and the media would see through it and they didn't have to. There was that, that age in, in politics where, oh, if you give it more oxygen, you're just giving it credibility. Well, no, you learn the hard way that, you know, narratives settle in if you don't. And at least, give well, your you know, look, uh, l- let me be clear about this. The Obama administration and so many others, because I, as you could imagine, I was then bombarded by press uh, from written press to television about birtherism. Yeah. What Obama and his people believed was that no one could stand for this clearly racist, you know, statement by somebody, right? right? That, you know, attacking, you know, attacking Obama, you know, based upon, you know, his color Mm -hmm. um, of his skin. And, no, no. It goes to show you that yeah. there is still in this country an enormous amount of both racism mm-hmm. and stupidity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way to get past that. And Trump has managed in his abilities to tap in to that racism mm-hmm. and to the stupidity of as he likes to say, you know, the poorly educated. Yeah, no, no, no question. And, and the point in, in telling that story is that it, it was, it, it was about how, the, how we as our people in the political sphere engage in a really fast moving media cycle that is full of different platforms and ecosystems and what he said was he lamented. He was just like, I feel we feel almost like we did a disservice by allowing Trump 
to to claim this narrative that never went away because we didn't engage fast enough, quick enough, and and aggressive enough. And it was like the Kerry campaign believing the media was going to come to the rescue. I just don't want the Biden um, campaign to to think that fact checks are going to be the key to winning this election, yeah. uh, and that yeah. that the media is going to ultimately and voters are going to see through his absurdly offensive and 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 whatever you I guess crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mike. You know, Mike. Remember when you talk about slow, slow in reaction, very different than the way um, Trump did it going back in 2016. I'll never forget when Bill Maher was making fun of Donald because it is such a racist thing to have said. So he said, well, prove to me that you're not the spawn of an orangutan and I'll donate five million dollars to your favorite charity. (laughs) And so within 30 minutes of that, you know, of me getting to the office, I had a copy of his birth certificate sent to Bill Maher, along with the name of the charity that we wanted the money to go to. Right. And so and he was like, you know, well, it was a joke. We're like, well, we'll sue you. You know, you made an offer and it's an acceptance. We sent you right this performance. Uh, And so it was funny. But that stupid little stunt owned the media for 72 hours. People don't realize 72 hours of owning the media is probably worth a hundred million dollars. But I want to move on and ask you this, Michael, because. Biden is not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. I mean, what do you make of that debacle? And do you think that it's going to hurt? Do you think that it's going to hurt the Biden campaign in the long run? The answer to your last question is no. I don't think it's going to hurt him at all in the long run. But it was a, and I, I said this on CNN a uh, couple times last fall. I said this was a sort of a unnecessary you know, unforced error. Um, the president's taking on enough water. He doesn't need to be, be become the first incumbent in contemporary, you know, presidential primary process history to not be on the ballots in Iowa and New Hampshire. And, so for my, for my listeners, explain to them what the mistake was here. Well, and, uh, you know, there's some history here, you know, in um, 2008, Michigan and uh, Florida moved up their primary, defying DNC rules, I think, because states control their own elections. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire has it in their constitution that they are the first in the nation uh, uh, primary. The DNC made a change and decided to move Ca- South Carolina up as the first primary. Um, and if the DNC, you know, the DNC's obviously the DNC is the party. Joe Biden is the leader of the party. So he would not be on the ballot in, in New Hampshire because in their view, the first primary is technically South Carolina. Now it's a, it's a lot of process. It's a lot of, um, nuts and bolts about how our primary system works or doesn't work. I just personally don't know if there was a a, a value add to doing it. Um, but, you know, the president is the leader of the party. Um, 
parties themselves are not democratic. Uh, so you just, you fall in line um, and you do it. Now, people did not, there are a fraction of people who didn't like that. So Dean Phillips is con- is competing, a former or a congressman from Minnesota, um, as are some others. But the mistake actually, Michael, seems to be, and I'm not clued in, and super PACs can't coordinate, but by the Biden allies creating a super PAC to write in Joe Biden and write and basically um, driving a write in campaign, all that does now is sort of uh, allows Dean Phillips to have this scale to measure his loss. By I think Biden may very well win, will probably win the, the write in vote, but now, like most incumbents win by 84%. Yeah. So he has allowed, they have, a, by doing this fake, I don't know. It, it, become, it, becomes a neg- it becomes a negative narrative. That's it. And they, they hate process stories, but now they're going to get a month of, again, yeah. it, it, we'll wait to see how things turn out tonight, right? Like if it's a blowout, it won't matter one bit. And then he'll go on to South Carolina and, and, and nobody will remember this. And it will just be a lot of like process stories and negative attention he got for no reason. Now, the margin of victory will be really important. I mean, I forget what the mm-hmm. margin was in 1968, but uh, I think Johnson won it handily and still got out of the race because his performance was, I think, only in like the 50s or 60s. So l- let me ask you this then. So let's say for any number of reasons, Trump ends up out of the race. And Nikki Haley becomes the GOP nominee. Again, obviously, this is a hypothetical. How do you think that Biden will do against her, especially with independence? I think I think it will be a very I think it will be a, a tougher race to run than against Donald Trump. I think there's a Nikki Haley has a lot of appeal. And, you know, we'll. New Hampshire can sometimes course correct, right? We saw it with you guys in 2016. I think we saw it in 1988. Um, George Bush came back and won there. Um, we saw it, God, when, uh, there's been a few times when New Hampshire has done the course correcting. It's also been sort of a reaction to Iowa, uh, whether it was Bernie Sanders in, in 2020 or uh, Hillary Clinton in 2008, you know, it can, and John McCain in 2000, it can be just a reaction to what Iowa has done, but have very little meaning, meaning as well, because there's such a, the rest of the campaign is mostly closed primary systems where it's just Republicans voting um, and not independents. And so that's Haley's problem, but it, that's Haley's concern if she wins. If she loses New Hampshire, uh, I don't know, Mike, it looks... It looks yeah. bleak, right? Yeah. yeah. You know what's really amazing, too? So the extent of the disinformation, misinformation, malinformation that Trump and his team spew, it's truly overwhelming. I'll give you an example. One of the things that his people and he have been touting is that if Nikki Haley does well or if Nikki Haley wins, it's only because Democrats are voting her in because New Hampshire has it where you can vote. 
uh, for whoever you want. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to explain that as well the other day uh, to somebody. Democrats don't get to vote in the Republican primary in New Hampshire. Only undeclareds Mm -hmm. get to vote. Not, Not registered Democrats, but Trump put that out there. And I can't tell you the number of people who have been saying this and repeating it. I don't know why after everybody knows that 99.95, it's like um, ivory soap, of what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth is bullshit. It's made up. It's bullshit. Complete and total bullshit. They still take what he says and they regurgitate it as if it's fact. But the same, and I don't understand. But the same is true as we were talking before with with the the media. No, God love them. A lot of them are my friends. But the oversaturation, just knowing everything he says, we take and we analyze, or we. When does the shock wear off? Because it wore off on me a long time ago. So, and that's the danger, I think, Michael. In that, in by. By making him the center of our media universe 24-7, we're going to immune people from feeling like he's doing anything beyond the norm or beyond, like, uh, what I'm trying to say is that they're going to feel almost like the cake is baked and nothing has really changed about Trump. So the more outraged we get, becomes more outrage over outrage over outrage when does it just become when when does it become sort of flat to voters you know and then I, I don't know i mean you know that, i tell everybody if yeah if you want to if you want to know who donald trump truly is don't listen to me don't listen to anyone just listen to donald listen yeah. to what he says and make your own decision are mm-hmm. you into an autocracy and to destroy our democracy that's not me saying it it's him saying it right Right. And, but like, I guess my question is during the Hollywood access thing or access Hollywood thing, sorry. uh, That wasn't enough to really change minds. And that was even on tape. Like there was no like disguising, disguising him. I think he even apologized for it, but like, it didn't really change. No, no. No, he's never apologized. No? Okay. What he did is he rationalized it and said it was locker room oh, talk. Oh, locker room talk. And that You're was right. something that Melania, that was actually right. something Melania made up. Really? Yeah. You mean she... Can, can I ask you a question? Instead, let, I mean, let's just, as an example, let, let's take it to foreign policy. You know, looking at the situation, for example, in Israel, the president's support for Israel is not popular, though I'm not sure that most people even understand Biden's policy towards Israel. What can that and what should the Biden administration be doing right now to change this narrative? Well, look, the president, this president has is a is a loyalist to to Israel through and through. And he's always been that way. He's he's been a just a a defender of the state of Israel for going back to the seventies. I think he talks about it in his book. It's been, it's been examined. Um, he has a relationship with, with BB that goes back to the eighties when BB was a staffer here in DC working at the Israeli embassy. They've, they've 
had a relationship. It's it's been tested over the years, certainly, especially when Biden was vice president. But it, and I'm not a foreign policy expert, Michael. But I, I what I, I know, I understand politics, and um, my concern is not so much about his position on Israel or how he performs in this in this area. It's how it translates to those voters who are souring on him uh, or indifferent to him in the first place, and that it adds to sort of a, a narrative that makes, that again, going back to the 2016 example, that will sort of motivate voters to protest both of the candidates for someone that will not win. And we won't know the answer to that until we know who gets ballot access or not. If it's a head, it's somewhere. If what? Right, Mike, somewhere, somewhere, people are convinced simply because Donald said in 24 hours he could end the Israel Hamas war. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. And, and again, and, and I want to just stick with this for a second. I don't understand why Biden's strategy and the position that America is taking, which is to help uh, Israel, a democracy, an ally of America forever. Um, The fight is between democracy and terrorism. Mm -hmm. So I'm just not sure what the fuck these people are even thinking. And I don't think that there is a strategy that Biden or anybody for that matter, I don't think if God himself came down from the heavens and developed a strategy that had any benefit towards Israel, that these same people would not be turning around and saying, I don't like your strategy. It doesn't make a difference. They are, for whatever the reason may be, they are anti-Israel. And again, I understand the position that there are innocents that are being killed in Palestine. I acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. I also acknowledge that there's still, what, 150 hostages that were taken? And I say Mm -hmm. to people when they bring this up, I would just like for you to answer one quick question for me. Assuming that there was a festival going on in Texas. Coachella. Bunch of kids. Bunch of kids. Well, Coachella, whatever it might. Exactly. Coachella. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Mexico sends over in paragliders and little planes and they bust through the wall and they start shooting everybody, taking hostages. What would a rational, what would a reasonable response by America towards Mexico be? Mm-hmm. What would you want, especially if it was your relative? Just give me that answer. And of course, nobody has an answer for it because, again, it goes right back to what you said before. They're searching for reasons why not to to like Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to feed into a lot of, again, people, I think it's a largely confined to people on the left and and a lot of younger voters who feel disaffected or disenchanted or indifferent to Biden, uh, that they will, that they are look searching for these reasons and they're not put, it's hard for them. I don't know why they're, or they're just not as informed or educated to put things into context 
go back to 9-11. First of all, this is a president who got us out of a war of Afghanistan. You might not like how he got yep. us out of the war. That's a separate that's a separate question. But he doesn't like war. He Biden wanted us to get out of Afghanistan. So but this is a war between Israel and and a terrorist group, the same war uh, that we fought with a terrorist group called Al-Qaeda. And I think memories just run really short. And it's important to examine yep. history. And Israel, you know, it doesn't it war is not pretty. It's not it's not it's dissatisfying. It's uncomfortable. It is it is hard to watch and it is painful. Yeah. And that's why the president got us out of Afghanistan. Um, well, he really didn't have a choice there. That was already preset under the Trump administration. So he had to do it by a specific day. I mean, at the end of the day, I still consider it to be you're right. It wasn't pretty, but it certainly was effective. I want to jump into something different for a second. Tell us about Hunter Biden. I mean, how do you think that Hunter is handling this um, House investigation so far? And more importantly, what do you make of Republicans' obsession with this guy? Is it all in service to their Biden crime family narrative, or do you think it's something else? Well, let's start with the the first question on on Hunter, because you you were just talking about this a couple of minutes ago on how Trump is so good at when he wants to take credit for something, making it the story. I've, I've got to say, I've been just incredibly impressed with the way Hunter and his team led by Abby Lowell have conducted their, their strategy because both times that Hunter, you know, made public appearances the first time, when he gave remarks, took the, it, it, it is a page out of Donald Trump and Roger Ailes playbook. It is to, it is live television element of surprise. It is confronting um, your opponents, taking them by surprise, forcing them on their feet, forcing their backs against the wall and sort of manipulating the coverage, owning the coverage. And that's what he did. Those the, he forced those those silly Republicans from oversight into a hallway mm-hmm. for for an unexpected press conference that they had no idea was coming, and, and they they had to have their own you know hallway presser. And it was uh you know he made them react to him. He owned the coverage, and all eyes were on were on him. And and I think the narrative started to develop that he was fighting back. And I think he really owned the coverage. And and then again, with the appearance on the Hill, I mean, just watching the networks just go live instantly. And then not only just go live, but force the networks to also scramble and cut away from the urine to go into the hallway to follow under to get to get more sound bites. They were just. I mean, you do have to admit you do have to admit that James Comer looked like a total asshole. You know, oh. during that hearing, I mean, and boy, Raskin, I mean, boy, did he, they, they tear Comer apart. But yeah, but he did. Some, and, and rightfully so. But what Hunter did was incredibly important because not only did he, you know, he take a page out of the Trump Ailes playbook and, and own the coverage and and sort of manipulate the media. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but forced 
forced the media to cover what he wanted instead of what the Republicans wanted, which they must have hated. Um, but he was speaking and in in reacting to a, a different audience. It wasn't even for those House Republicans. It is to say to Democrats, I'm fighting back. I'm not going to let them. I'm not going to let them go after my reputation and and my family. And I'm going to start punching back and hitting back. And you have a reason to want to root and support this team because we're going up against a real a bunch of a bunch of you know disingenuous um, folks on the hill with a lot of skeletons in their own closets. Uh, oh, you and, would say that again. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I thought that I thought that it was executed very well. I think Hunter won the media narrative. I think most experts that legal experts that day said it was a very good move uh, for, for him. And then. Oh, I totally agree. What I you totally were, agree. What you were saying about, about the Republicans. The dangerous thing here, Michael, that I don't know if they care because it's more short term um, gratification thing for them because Trump wants, you know, Joe Biden impeached. They want they want revenge, um, and they want to use the president's son. They saw him as a target rich environment to do that. Um, what they are doing is firing stray bullets. They are opening up a can of worms that is going to put family members, adult children, in laws, cousins, brother, siblings, parents in play for the future. How can they make Hunter Biden a target and take other family members off the table? Now, there are a lot of members of Congress in powerful positions who aren't on Fox News or aren't on MSNBC, but are putting their heads down and doing their jobs. Does the other side, in an effort to to make them more vulnerable, start looking at where their kids are making their money, where their incomes are coming from? Or where mm-hmm. their law firms or businesses are, are are getting clients from, or whether there's overseas investments. I mean, they are opening up a huge new front in political combat. And they know it. And they know it. You know, Michael, let me just jump into them because you brought up, you know, Kamala Harris before. Right now she's actually having a moment. Her activism around abortion. It's, it's getting noticed. And we, we all know that the saddest part about being a vice president is that, you know, you're never really in the spotlight until you're in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And she's had a recent appearance, and I saw it on The View, that even Kelly McEnany praised, which is really hard to believe. Well, so my question to you is, why is it taking so long for the vice president to establish herself, why hasn't this administration given her, you know, some free reign to take on at least this one topic and run with it? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would be lying if I said I knew the answer to your question. But what what I will say is that she is she, she she's not a staffer. She doesn't get assigned things. She is a a partner to the president. So she is, um, look, he cares about her deeply and, and her success reflects on him and, and, and his success. And he 
not only cares about her, but be- believes she is the future of our party. And so, and, and she's also an incredibly talented individual. You don't get to be San Francisco attorney general, attorney general of the you know fifth largest economy in the world, California, uh, and vice president um, by not being um, uh, extremely talented and having some really natural political gifts. And she does. She's extremely, I, just being around her, She's warm and charismatic and funny, and her husband is incredible too. That that said, she's so young in her career. Michael, when Joe Biden became vice president, he knew who he was. He knew his brand. He had been around for four decades. And while playing second fiddle to the president was the biggest transition for him, he still knew who he was and was comfortable and knew the things that he was good at. And that was like legislative lobbying and, and um, you know, work domestic policy and wrangling his old colleagues on the Hill, Mitch McConnell, Eric, people like Eric working with Republicans. Kamala's still so young in her biography and to, to, to be meteoric, to have this meteoric rise, almost like Richard Nixon, another California Senator, to go from a, a, a member of Congress to vice president in, in a really short time, you have to be honest and examine things as they are. And you can't sugarcoat it. Like she's finding her voice. And I think the Dobbs thing um, is her natural space. And um, I think she's going to be extremely effective at it. And it, it's, it's, it's going to be great for her, but also McEnany said that because she knows the truth that Democrats it is really hard to beat Democrats in a post Dobbs world. It just is. I mean, well, let's 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 hope that you're right about that. If they're able to put that on the ballot in states like Florida, even if we can't win Florida, it's going to force Republicans to spend money there where they would instead be spending in Georgia or Arizona. But if you get um, an abortion, uh, a choice uh, ballot measure, the way Bush did in, in 2004 in Ohio with gay marriage, you know, and, and Whitmer did in 2022, you know, that is, that it's going to be um, an interesting state to watch. It doesn't mean Democrats will win because it's been very hard to win in Florida, but it will definitely force Republicans to spend money in places that they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, because Republicans, they keep trying to find this angle to impeach President Biden. And we all know that there's no evidence for them to do it. So my question to you is, do you think that it's going to backfire on them or are Republicans hoping that just by saying the word impeachment over and over and over again, that somehow it'll negatively impact the president in the polls? And somehow benefit Trump. Yeah, well, I mean, you saw Kevin McCarthy make make that claim uh, eight years ago with Benghazi. It brought down her yeah. poll. It brought down her poll numbers. It seems like that was her their their intent. It is. I think their goal is to impeach him to 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 sort of nullify a corruption argument against Trump or to to neutralize it. And um, the problem with them, look, the problem with the Republicans have had is nobody, including them and Democrats, expected their margin of victory in 2022 to be so damn small that they probably would have done this much sooner. Or, and they probably would have been moved faster if they didn't have 
18 vulnerable members in Biden districts, 12 of whom I think won by uh, or B- Biden won mm-hmm. by double digits. Um, so it's really going to like I think those guys walked the plank in order to get that first impeachment inquiry vote. I, I can't see a world in which any of those 18, enough of those 18, I should say, actually support a vote to to impeach the president. Um, yeah, I don't see that, either, but that, that they, said, they don't stop talking about it. That said, I, I don't think that, you know, unlike in 1998 with Bill, 99 with Bill Clinton, Democrats have control of the Senate. I think Schumer, I bet Mitch McConnell would probably go along with it. I bet they just um, dismiss it. And don't even have have a trial. I'm saying worst case yeah. sc- scenario. I, if, I agree. I, by the way, I agree with you. On I that. mean, I would hope that they try to. But look, Joe Biden didn't need money from anybody. When Joe Biden and Jill Biden left the White House, they both got book deals, and I think both of them together were worth 17 million dollars. Uh, they didn't need money, and Hunter certainly wasn't. By the way, that's a far cry from the from the income that gets derived by presidents. You know, post fact. Uh, I mean, let, let's be let's be clear about oh, that yeah. one. I do. I do just because time is running out. I want to ask you this because this is all past history now. But you were part of the president's transition team. My yeah, question to you. My, yeah. How difficult did the Trump administration make it for the incoming administration to do what they need to do? I mean, did it feel as if they had planned to stay because something just seemed off there? What I remember now, I wasn't I wasn't on the on the front lines because, you know, transitions are formed uh, months in advance, as you know. And so there was a team in place trying to 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 work with them. From what I remember, I don't from what I know, our lawyers and our transition lawyers and teams were prepared for that going into going into it. I don't know if they ever predicted anything like nobody ever predicted anything like January 6th. I think I that did. there was. I what? did. Oh, I no. did. In 2018, I stood before the House Oversight Committee and I said to the entire world, 100 million people watched that that hearing um, ultimately. And I said, my biggest fear is if that Trump loses the 2020 election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. Well, that's what I said. You were right. <laughs> there wasn't. Yeah. Um, and it was. I'm sorry. So go ahead. You were saying. No, I just said I was incredibly impressed. Um, and I give a lot of credit to like people like Jeff Zients and Jen Psaki and um, Bob Bauer and Ted Kaufman, all uh, uh, Johannes Abraham, who who led our transition team. And and um, but. From what I remember and what I know, there was just complete intransigence. They were not that they were not helpful. And I, I think Chris Whipple lays that out very clearly in his book on Biden, Biden's first year or so. Um, what was sad was how they directed all their agencies not to cooperate with us. And, you know, it's just not the way things have ever been done. I'm not saying that. No, but it's also it. it it doesn't have to be done simply because of tradition or norms. It has to be done because of continuity of government so that government continues to run effectively and smoothly and seamlessly. But again, this isn't a man who particularly cares much about running a government or 
about being or a who steward. cares about this country. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's evident. And that but but living that and walking into the East Wing again, we had no count. I was Googling doc like um, academic documents to to uh, that were research based from institutions to see how uh, East Wings were run because there was no transition for for us. And, uh, you know, I walked in and squatted basically in an office that became my office. And there were Trump <laughs> Catholics for Trump signs everywhere. And Melania's, it was in the Shocking room. that they didn't, shocking they didn't glue them right to the walls. But Mike, as the hour comes to, to a mm-hmm. close, I have one last question for you. It's a personal one. Uh, tell us, tell us if you would, some of your favorite memories of working with Dr. Jill Biden. I mean, she has a wonderful reputation of being incredibly kind and very proactive. Specifically, I'm really interested in hearing about what I'm I'm just really interested in hearing about her secret and historic visit to Ukraine Mm -hmm. um, after the war had begun, because I believe that you were there. That was probably one of the one of the best moments of the entire experience working for her because it was history experience. I was riding next to her in the limo, in the motor, in the convoy into into Ukraine and um, kind of watching her as she put on her game face and. She can, she's very focused. She's, she knows. One thing I loved about working for her is she's extremely coachable. Michael, she always wants to do better at things because she's not a natural politician. She'll be the first one to admit it. She's not a politician at all. And so she would always say, you know, Michael, you have to be honest with me and give me honest feedback after interviews. Otherwise I can't get better. And after a while, and I was, I was always nervous to give her honest feedback because, first of all, she gets a lot of people in her ear uh, giving her conflicting feedback. But, and I, as an athlete, you know, I, I don't like people to get inside their heads too much. And, um, uh, but it was genuine that she always wanted. And then I finally figured out, you know, I owed her more than to not give her honest feedback. But, but the thing about her is that she reminds me of like one of my, Italian aunts because she has this northeastern sort of um, a- not accent but like dialect that you can come through. It comes through when she says coffee. She's not she's not entirely uh, like polished as a public speaker, which is to me her superpower that makes her more relatable. Is that she can make mistakes and and she's imperfect, and people appreciate that because. Most people are themselves and they appreciate that in others. And she's just such a normal person. And she was as a boss, you know, working for a first lady. And I don't know what it was like to work for Melania, but Dr. B was in the office every day. Even when she went to teach school, she would come back and come to the office. So you get a lot of time with, with the principal. And again, I traveled with her on the campaign, the ups and downs of the primary in general. Um, but she, look, we were doing four or five events a day in the primary and she was still teaching full time. Uh, same in the general, same virtually and her schedule in the white house, the travel schedule and, 
you know, she's just incredible at 70, her, uh, 71, I guess, 72. I wouldn't want to be doing all that, but it really is sort of, to me, sort of a reflection of their marriage, I guess, and their love story because he had done this twice before. 2020 was, I think, her 14th or 15th campaign. You know, most people (laughs) at 70 just want to retire. And she could have. They could have gone to their beach house and just retired and been happy with five or four and a half decades in public service. Great great marriage, wonderful kids and grandkids. And But I give her so much credit because without support, her support, I don't know if he could have done it. And and she's an I asset. totally look. It's you're right, and it's just she's completely an asset. The opposite. She's a she's just a relentless campaigner for somebody who's an introvert and shy. She's a relentless campaigner, and uh, she will do what it takes. And the last thing I would say, Michael, is that people don't know about her and underestimate about her is her competitiveness. And any any time. She sees people on TV or hears people talking about his doubting his chances or doubting him. I can, I can only say I can't imagine, but like that just makes her want to do this even more. Good, because we're going to need it. Michael, let me say, my friend, thank you for joining me again on Mea Culpa. It was good to see you. Good to see you. And um, as this thing heats up even more, I'm going to definitely ask you to come on back. We'll okay. Talk. All right. Thank Sounds you, my good. man. And now for today's mea culpa. I'm just sick to death of Democrats saying that nobody wants Joe Biden. It just isn't true. It's bad enough that Republicans are saying it, but in the wake of the New Hampshire primary, which actually turned out to be a pretty good night for President Biden, but you had liberal media pundits casting aspersions about his popularity and fitness and talking about polls and an uphill battle. I mean, take a stand, people. Back the president or just shut the fuck up because this is how Trump beat Hillary in 2016. The liberal media trying to play both sides kicked Hillary to the curb. I mean, they aren't dissing Trump in the right-wing media. No, they are hating on Biden 24-7. But we Democrats don't need to help them. I mean, Dean Phillips, this fucking piece of shit, supposedly running as a Democrat against Biden, was out in New Hampshire with Trump voters trying to drum up, well, to be sure, I'm not certain. What he's trying to drum up? Trouble? Maybe. Support? Highly doubtful. It's just all bullshit. He knows he can't win. I mean, he shouldn't even be in the conversation. But there he is, saying that Biden doesn't support the red states. Uh, hello? Are there no auto workers in the red states? I mean, the United States Auto Workers Union has just stepped up to endorse Biden. I mean, what other president ever walked the picket line with striking workers? No one. Joe Biden, that's it. Trump certainly didn't. He has systematically stood behind the middle class and is trying hard to balance the wealth gap in this country. He doesn't give tax breaks to the rich to get their donations. No, he gets pay increases to workers so that they can live better lives. I mean, why wouldn't people want to vote for Biden? 
especially if they knew how much he has done for them. I mean, Joe Manchin is an incredibly unpopular senator. So why is he playing around with no labels and considering a run for the presidency? He'd just be a third-party spoiler. And what does Joe Manchin get out of being a third-party spoiler? Answer, money. I mean, we already know he's not immune to lining his pockets. But seriously, Manchin is now praising a bill that he damn near tanked. The Inflation Reduction Act, also known as Build Back Better. The only party hates now is clean energy because he is backed by the dirty coal industry. So Manchin is falsely claiming that the Biden administration is trying to shove electric vehicles down our throats and that somehow electric vehicles aren't good for rural America. I'm sure the United Auto Workers would disagree with him because EVs are built here at home. I mean, thousands of EV trucks are rolling off the assembly line in Texas, for an, as an example. I mean, so how are they bad for rural America? Even Joe Manchin doesn't deny that the Inflation Reduction Act has been a huge win for America. In addition to successfully helping reduce inflation, it's reduced the federal deficit, it's lowered prescription drug prices, and increased domestic energy production. And it's also driving investment in clean energy. But then we got Joe Manchin still running around the country bashing Biden while taking credit for his accomplishments. I mean, how low will Manchin and no labels go? It's hard to say because they are backed by dark money and hell fucking bent on getting rid of the president. So my question is, you have to ask yourself, why? Who wins? Well, Donald Trump, of course. I mean, every time one of our so-called allies bashes the president or lazily exclaims that no one wants him anymore, it's a victory for Trump. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the insanity of the Kennedy campaign because he's certifiable. But it's all meant to keep Biden from winning a second term. It's aimed at protecting the rich and keeping the workers down. So don't be fooled, my friends. They will cast doubts because a second Biden term will mean more power for the people and less power for them, for the rich. But the liberal media better wake up before it's too fucking late. And no matter what, don't forget that there are more of us than there are of them. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group.